Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. Climate change is one of the dominant news stories of the 21st century. Rising sea levels, more fearsome and catastrophic hurricanes, drought, raging wildfires. There is so much here that seems to touch existential fears of Americans. The podcast series Religion in the American Experience wishes to understand how religion, one of the greatest forces in the nation's history and which addresses existential questions, figures into American environmentalism, which meets climate change and other challenges facing planet Earth head on. Today, to help us at least begin to uncover some of the relationships between religion and environmentalism is Mark Stoll, professor of history at Texas Tech University and author of Inherit the Holy Mountain, Religion and the Rise of American Environmentalism. Mr. Stoll teaches about environmental history and the history of religion, and is also the author of Protestantism, Capitalism, and Nature in America, and co-editor with Diane Glave of To Love the Wind and the Rain, African Americans and Environmental History. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Texas at Austin. We guarantee that our time together today will help all of us understand better what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, and we trust that as a result, listeners will come to better understand how revolutionary and indispensable the idea of religious freedom as a governing principle is to the United States and its future. Join us in building the National Museum of American Religion in the nation's capital to open in 2026 on the 240th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, Almighty God hath created the mind free, which captures the American essence of religious freedom by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute. Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. First, how did you become interested in the connection between religion and environmentalism, which, if understood, you write, quote, gives the history and development of environmentalism a trajectory, unity, and power, and provides extraordinary insight into the environmental movement's past and future, close quote. Well, there's a couple of ways I suppose I could answer that. Um, First would be, that as an, a grad student uh, writing my first um, research paper, I got interested in, my mother had, before I went back to graduate school, had given me a biography of John Muir, who was the founder of the Sierra Club in 1892. 
and also a major voice for national parks in the late 19th, early 20th century, friend of Theodore Roosevelt and all sorts of things. Um, he had had a very deeply religious background coming out of basically a Presbyterian Scottish um, culture, uh, born in Scotland, raised in, the, in on the farm in Wisconsin. And yet he would go on to be this icon in um, the history of the environmental movement, kind of a founder of it. So um, the this would be back in uh, 1987 when the, and still today, uh, I think the prevailing wisdom is that religion and the environment are enemies, are hostile, are intention. Um, this would have been right after um, uh, James Watt had been Secretary of the Interior back under the Reagan administration, and he was a, uh, a Pentecostal uh, and tried as much as possible to dismantle the environmental regulations and network that had been put together back in the 70s. Uh, and so it had been sort of reinforced. Also, there was the uh, famous Lynn White essay. Uh, he was a historian of technology and um, a medieval historian. And he had written in 1967 a essay that you still see everybody um, still being assigned to students everywhere uh, that the origins of the environmental crisis, the ecologic crisis, as he called it, lay in Christianity. Christianity was uniquely hostile to nature, um, that Genesis put gave man dominion over nature, and that uh, Christianity had, when it had uh, banished, vanquished paganism, also vanquished all the spirits and the other beings that inhabited nature and made nature of a, a thing. And consequently, we were using nature as a thing, as something for our benefit heedlessly. And that was inbred in Christianity. And he found Protestantism to be uh, worst of all. So this is kind of still today kind of received wisdom about, about that. So I wondered, how did John Muir get from such a background, deeply religious background, um, with what today we would call fundamentalist, um, evangelical? Um, how did he get came from that background to be this hero of the environmental movement? And that started my journey. Mm. And um, the more I explored it, the more I found very deep connections between the environmental movement uh, and Christianity, especially the, the part of Christianity that it was supposedly most hostile to nature, uh, the, the Calvinist tradition. And as my book um, chronicles, um, just about all of the major environmental voices, both writers, thinkers, uh, as well as activists had come out of the it's exactly that tradition, the Calvinist tradition. So that okay. required me to find out why. And I said, there were two things. The other thing was that the, as I 
was discovering this, uh, particularly after a certain point, about after 1889, every single person you can think of was raised in the Presbyterian church, which nobody had ever noticed before. And I thought, how come nobody noticed this? <laughs> if it's, they're all, if they all have this in common, um, uh, how come no one noticed it? And uh, it made me think about myself because I also was raised Presbyterian um, and in a very conservative part of the country, you would not. So I knew that pres the Presbyterian church itself was not a school for environmentalism. Uh, just because you're Presbyterian didn't make you environmentalist yet. Um, overwhelming number of you know, John Muir, Theodore Roosevelt, um, I mean, uh, Rachel Carson and all sorts of names, um, oftentimes uh, either wanted to be a minister at one point or had a minister very close in the family. Uh, there's a, stroke, a strong connection there too. So this is really a strong religious connection. And then, you know, I end up being a, a lapsed Presbyterian environmentalist, just like virtually all of these people. Right. So um, this was not something I set out to discover. It was something I found that I was a type. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, that's a great story. Uh, quickly tell us why the title, Inherit the Holy Mountain, and then we'll dive into some details, uh, which you mentioned there in your introduction. That's, there's a funny story behind that, if, uh, if that's appropriate. Sure. Um, actually, I had a working title that... Um, I didn't necessarily think was going to be the final title, but um, Oxford never said anything about it. And this was a uh, coming from a quote by Emerson, Emerson which was that uh, the, the working title was um, Nature and the Colors of the Spirit. Nature, uh, um, in his famous essay, Nature, by Emerson, he had said, nature always wears the colors of the spirit, which I thought was really a striking quote. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it reflects the religious tradition. Nature reflects the religious tradition of the person looking at it, which is one of the basic themes of the, of the book, how you view nature, how you view the environmental movement comes from, it is different depending upon what denomination you grew up in. Um, so I thought, well, that's very nice. But then just before uh, I was working frantically to get the manuscript to them by the deadline that we agreed upon was September 1st. And just a few weeks before that, they said, uh, well, what is the title of the book going to be? It's like, uh, I didn't know <laughs> that you didn't, that you had a problem with the title. So, um, and they said, yes, didn't we tell you? And like, no, they forgot to tell me. So uh, I had like three days or somebody to come up with a title that would please the marketing department and so it could go into the fall catalog. Um, and there was a lot of, this came out of with Isaiah, I think. Um, Cause I was thinking of trying to think of something that was prophetic. Yeah. Isaiah 57, 13, he that put his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So it's, um, I thought it was a very nice connection between faith and nature. Right. So, okay. um, and uh, there's the story of the title. Okay. I, I like the title. It's a great, it's a great verse from Isaiah and captures, captures what's in your book very well. So Mark, you, you start. Uh, 
you know, marketing loved it too. Did they? Okay. Well, good. Mark, you start by analyzing a famous painting called The Oxbow by Thomas Cole, who was the founder of the American Hudson River School, who was also religious enough for you to write, quote, he had made his reputation as a painter of landscapes, but in his own mind, he was first and foremost a religious painter, close quote. Can you tell us briefly about Cole, Calvinism, and their understanding of nature that laid the foundation for American environmentalism in the early 19th century. Well, there's a, uh, you know, there's a big question for me. Um, Tell us about Calvinism, Cole, and the foundations here. Uh, Cole um, comes out of a, out of the dissenter tradition in England. He was born in Lancashire, which is, uh, has a history of religious radicalism. It was a hotbed of Puritanism back in the, during the Civil War. And uh, his family came out of that tradition. Um, but he himself um, may not have been strictly Calvinist, certainly as an adult, he was not. So I, what, one of the things that I emphasize in the book is that it's not Calvinism per se, but rather kind of a culture of Calvinism which creates a sympathy for nature, a, a desire to protect it um, and reserve it for the benefit of the people. Uh, but he did get out of that. Um, something that Calvin had talked a lot about was that in nature, you will find God. And you know, Calvin himself had said that in, in nature is where we that God draws clear, closest to us and in a way communicates himself to us. So that's the natural world for Calvin is really where you find God. Um, and I, I find it not a coincidence that he's living in Geneva, which is, you know, Mont Blanc is on the horizon and um, a spectacular, beautiful landscape. Uh, of course, he's French. He's not from Geneva, but uh, certainly there throughout um, the, tradi- the Calvinist traditions, um, Puritanism, Congregationalism, Presbyterianism, there is this emphasis on finding God in nature. And that it seems to me the reason for this must be that in the Reformation, the whole structure of the church that supported the truth of religion is... Uh, beginning with Luther kind of pushed into the background. It no longer teaches religion. You'll find everything you need to know in the Bible. Everything you need to know for salvation is in the Bible. Uh, But without the traditions of the church uh, giving equal weight to that, which the Catholic church does, um, what supports the truth of the Bible? And there are some passages there that suggest that you'll find them in nature, uh, like uh, St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans 120. Uh, the invisible things of God are seen in, in the things that are made. Um, so to see God's goodness, his existence, his wisdom, uh, we go to nature, we turn to nature, and we look up into the night sky and, and, and view it with a certain religious awe. 
and that is the the basis for religion. And for the Protestants, and especially for the Calvinists, we will logically work our way from there to that the Bible must be true, and and so on. And then nature does not tell you how to be saved, but it does support the truth of religion. So if you ever find Calvinism or the Bible unsatisfying intellectually or emotionally or, or religiously, uh, there still is that in the background that, you know, that you can find that you can use nature itself as kind of the source of religion. Mm-hmm. And this is where Cole finds himself. So his uh, paintings of the landscape are paintings of uh, the wisdom, the power, the glory of God um, expressing himself through the land. Okay. Um, he, a lot of his paintings that are not so popular today but were quite popular in his time were of specifically religious topics. And he, that's what he really wanted to do was to paint those religious paintings. But even in, in the early 19th century, they, there was not the market for them as there was for the, the others. And right. kind of saw the landscape paintings as a way to make money. Right. Okay. Let's move from that uh, to the, uh, what, what you mentioned as the New England town in quotes, uh, and its outsized effects on environmentalism. And you write it, you describe it in this way, quote, the children of the New England town became its evangelists. They offered it as a salvation for a nation staggering from one environmental, social, and economic crisis to another, establishing an extraordinary and enduring intellectual and moral framework for the work of conver- conservation, close quote. Can you tell us this story? Uh, sure. Um, when the Puritans came to America, their goal, of course, had several goals, but one of them was to try to create, for the first time, a perfectly godly society, just as God had intended. Uh, for Calvinists, the Bible was, uh, for Luther, the Bible is the source of how do you be, be saved, a source of religious truth. Um, for Calvinists, they wanted to go much further that the Bible itself was kind of a blueprint for the family, for our relationships with each other, for the church, for society, for government. Every question that you might have should be answered. You'll find the answer in the Bible. And so uh, with that idea in mind, they didn't really have a pre-existing idea of what the society would look like before they came here which is kind of interesting. Um, nobody had sat down and actually sketched it out, you know, uh, the, the, an exact plan for what society should be. Um, so here having this opportunity, they kind of had to work it out on the ground. Uh, and of course, whatever, if you're the first to do something and you set something up, your decisions at the very beginning will affect everybody from then on. So this is kind of, they created this framework that the rest of us still today kind of live in. Um, and they wanted it to be, of course, godly, but that, what did godly mean? They didn't, they believed that every person should, how would you put this, um, have an equal opportunity to use the talents that God gave them for the benefit of society. Like that's what God wanted. That's why he gave everybody talents. And if you were poor, 
you couldn't do that. You were struggling too much just to feed yourself and your family that um, whatever talents you had would, would, be, would be wasted. And they also saw poverty as a result of sin, that in Eden, everybody, there was enough for everyone. And it was when Eve desired something more, this desire, this greed was the root of all sin. That's how we got kicked out of Eden. So we were never to get back into Eden, but uh, we can try to keep desire, avarice, greed at bay. And so they, they were, especially in the early days, very strict about trying to limit it. But they also decided to try to get rid of poverty. So when they set up their New England town, uh, they believed that um, living by yourself was not what God wanted. We were all supposed to be living for others. Our talents are not for ourselves only, but for the glory of God and for the benefit of everyone else. So everybody had to live in a, a community. So uh, unlike the other colonies in America, which were like Virginia, uh, you went out and you lived on your own little plot of land and did the best for yourself. Um, growing tobacco, um, buying slaves if you could, um, buying more land to grow more tobacco to make more money. Uh, it's very competitive, individualistic society. It's like, oh, no, no, that's, it leads to, uh, that just leads to sin. Um, if everybody lives together, we can also keep an eye on one another and make sure that, you know, my neighbor isn't sinning and, and so on. We'll be a more godly community if we, we live together. Um, so every individual at those early, when the town was set up, was given land so they wouldn't be poor and all the different kinds of land that a farmer would need to live sustainably. And this is uh, really kind of a, a very interesting aspect of the town is the, that we're trying to create a just, sustainable society. And it's one of the few times in history, maybe the only time in history, where people set out to create an entire society, not just a little community, but an entire society based on social justice and um, sustainability. So that you had to have a, a hay meadow so that you would have hay to feed your animals in the wintertime. Um, you collect the manure uh, and of course you'd have to have pasture for them in the summertime. You also have to have arable land to grow your grains to support yourself and, and uh, the townspeople. Uh, you would collect the manure over the winter from these animals. Of course, you live in New England where it's very cold. You've got to keep your animals in a barn in, in the winter and you can collect the manure and then um, fertilize your arable fields in the, uh, in the springtime. So it's a, a sustainable system. Um, in theory, if they could keep it up, the system could be preserved indefinitely. Um, so there is this idea of the godly community. As a community, there's supposed to be one church. So they're very reluctant to allow religious um, toleration to have other denominations. Uh, if you were a Quaker, or if you were a Baptist for a long time, many, many, many decades, hundred years, really, uh, you operated under disability. They did everything they could to discourage you from setting up your own church and being separate because the town was supposed to be a community and we're all supposed to be together. 
So I had this vision. We would probably think it very oppressive to live there. It probably was. Um, so I make, which makes me wonder, you know, in a broader sense, what would a just and sustainable community look like? We all want our individual freedoms. Can you actually have complete individual freedom? Is that compatible with uh, a just and sustainable society? These are, these are good questions. I don't see many people really tackling. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. You uh, also explain, and you touched on it here briefly, but um, you explain that Calvinist ministers often used Christ's parable of the talents to persuade their believers that theirs was a, quote, never ceasing responsibility to improve one's soul, one's intellect, and one's possessions, close quote. So, so you, you emphasize that improvement was emphasized absolutely in, the, in these communities. Can you describe the, the ramifications of that? Sure. Um, in agriculture, agriculture, this is, um, we're trying to improve the land. Um, this goes back to Calvin. Calvin had said uh, that the, what Genesis 2.15 means to say to us, uh, Genesis 2.15 is where God gives, uh, puts Adam in the garden to care for it and keep it. I said, what God wants us to do then is to, you know, take a, if we own a field to leave it in as good or better condition than the way we got it. So this is our, our duty to God um, is to improve it. Improve. Uh, he didn't use the word improve. Improve had a economic meaning originally. And um, in the early, right around 1600, uh, the, Puritan ministers began to use it in this sense um, and improving not only your possessions like your field, but also, like, as you said, um, improve yourself morally, improve yourself intellectually. Um, even in the 19th century, people are, if they bought a book to read, they wanted to know if it was an improving book. So um, improvement yeah. becomes sort of it escapes religious discourse and by in the 1700s becomes a very general word for uh, for improving agriculture to make it more productive. And uh, this is also on the minds of the, the Puritans and their Congregationalist descendants um, because New England is not a great place to farm. There is some good farmland in New England, but it is rare. It's a, you know, it uh, was heavily glaciated in the last ice age. And there's a lot of places with sand. There's a lot of rocks in the soil. It's really, um, uh, somebody once said, I think it was a minister that even the soil itself was very Puritan in New England because it just made you work for your, you know, work hard okay. for your, uh, your profits out of it. Okay. Uh, it made you a better person because you had right. to work so hard. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Let's see. Uh, let's move on to this chapter entitled Building the Moral Society. And in this chapter, Mark, you detail the Puritan influence on a wider America, its agriculture, its forests, and parks. For example, I noted that one of the people responsible for the famous U.S. land-grant university system quote, believed that agricultural improvement 
served religious purposes and also hastened the millennium, close quote. Can you share how this wider, this, this broader influence on America uh, unfolded? And, and included in that, that story, or not the story, but this character, Gifford Pinchot in U.S. forestry, uh, which was a, he was a, a major figure early on. Well, you, um, there probably seems like several parts to that question. Let me see. Um, so we do the 19th century, we get people who are raised in the, the New England town who generally leave it, uh, to be honest. Um, Gifford Pinchard wasn't raised, and he was raised in New York, but his, uh, would visit his grandfather in uh, the little, little Connecticut town that his mother was from. Um, uh, George Perkins Marsh would probably be uh, one of the better examples who was definitely born in uh, a little town um, and was conservative Congregationalist uh, as a Calvin, Calvinist uh, growing up, although he left it behind, found it really narrow and uh, oppressive, but he still had that idea that um, the New England town would be a perfect model for America as it expanded westward, that this communal attitude and using the the land in a sustainable way, because he would look at the way that American farmers out west, where land was so cheap, so plentiful, and so rich, that they didn't have to take care of it at all. And, uh, you know, this decried that this is terrible Americans just do not know how to use the land properly. And so he's promoting good agricultural practices and the latest, most scientific methods. This is also the time period when the importance of uh, phosphorus and nitrogen in the soil for productivity is being discovered in Europe. Uh, and uh, Americans are reading that. Uh, American farmers, it's appearing in all the farm magazines, the farm journals, uh, how to improve their soils. Uh, if you're back East, uh, you have to compete with these rich farms out West and you just can't do it. Uh, it really forces the kind of final dissolution of the, that Puritan ideal of using land in a, in a sustainable way. Basically capitalism makes it impossible. You know, if you can import cheaper grain from elsewhere, it forces you to just abandon using grain altogether. And so what are you gonna do? And it breaks the chain of this uh, sustainable system. Um, so farmers are struggling in New England. He wants to help them. He's also worried that people are cutting down their forests, which have all sorts of practical advantages to having forests, plus leaving future generations with no wood, which seemed like unthinkable in the early 19th century. Wood was used for everything. Um, wood is part of the sustainable system. Every farm and from the Puritan days onwards needed to have wood because you needed wood for heat, you needed it for your fences, you needed it for your farm buildings. Um, and so you would need to use your woodlot sustainably. So sustainable forestry is part of this. And so do you get, he, uh, Marsh in, as an adult will write sort of the key 
text in Man and Nature in 1864 that would become uh, internationally recognized as um, uh, a call for conservation, especially forest conservation. Um, Marsh had gone to places, uh, he had been, a, he was a diplomat and he had been in the Mediterranean region. He was also a linguist and so he had read you know, uh, ancient Greek and Roman texts in the original Greek and Latin, uh, describing beautiful landscapes, beautiful valleys. And he would go to visit the beautiful valley that he'd read so much about and find it in the 1850s and 60s um, with the trees gone, with the springs dried up, you know, the rivers dried up, just a bunch of bare rocks baking in the sun. And he realized that right, he believed that people had done this. They had cut down the trees. The trees had protected the watershed and allowed the springs to continue. And once the trees were gone, the springs dried up, the rivers dried up, then they unleashed goats on the landscape and the goats and the sheep uh, ate the grass down to the bare soil and the soil eroded away. And you ended up with a, a desert baking in the sun. He realized that humans can have a permanent negative impact on nature, which had never really been formulated like that before. And this shocked everybody around the world and said, yes, this could be where Western civilization is heading. And you could really see it in America because we were so heedless with our resources. There was so much here. The forests were so vast, truly they were endless. Uh, there was always more soil opening up out west. You know, we'd uh, there was no incentive in America to farm, to, to um, cut trees sustainably. And so he becomes this great call for that. And we find in Gifford Pinchot, uh, whose um, father was very wealthy and um, had uh, made his money from actually clear cutting forest in Eastern Pennsylvania. And uh, then he began to read more about forestry and began to have kind of a guilt about that. And I think really that he, it, he was the one that pushed Gifford towards become a, becoming a forester. And uh, it certainly was his father's suggestion and uh, Gifford being, I guess, a dutiful son then studied forestry in Europe and then came back and became um, this great advocate for it, but he also was um, uh, being upper class. Doors were open to him, and uh, he could rub shoulders and elbows with people like uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who became they became best buddies. Um, and then he would go on to found the American uh, Forestry Service, United States Forestry Service. Um, notice too the name service. It uh, has this implicit Christianity to it that it, we are serving society. You know, it's service right. for the United States. Where, right. And there was this high, high idealism of the first generation or two. It maybe still is there today, but not quite like that initial generation of foresters that they were pushing back the greed of the logging companies and protecting the forests and their the watersheds and everything else that forests do for us from private avarice and greed and 
Right. People are in it for themselves. Okay. Well, I think you answered that uh, complicated question very well. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, let's see. We are talking with Mark Stoll, professor of history at Texas Tech University and author of Inherit the Holy Mountain, Religion and the Rise of American Environmentalism about the relationship between religion and environmentalism. Join us in building the National Museum of American Religion in the nation's capital to open in 2026 on the 240th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, Almighty God hath created the mind free, capturing the American essence of religious freedom by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute. Mark, um, can you tell us some stories about the Presbyterians who as you state in your book, quote, were men and women of the word, preachers of righteousness, rather than preservers of godly community, and who transmuted conservationism into mid-20th century environmentalism in the white-hot fires of moral urgency, close quote. Great writing. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, Presbyterianism being, a, it's a, like a cousin to congregationalism, it comes out of that same Puritan movement. Uh, it is a different form than the congregationalism, a different form of church, of ecclesiology. Uh, it has much more structure than the congregational church, which was regionally, you know, was, was a town church. And in New England, every church was independent from every other church, the congregational independence. Uh, Presbyterianism, which was came out of a design by Calvin, uh, and is very similar to the Calvinist churches, the way they're set up, um, say uh, Huguenot Church or or where you know in in um, or in um, Switzerland, uh, has uh, of course the, your local congregation, which runs itself. Uh, you have um, the Kirk sessions. Uh, the session is layman, basically, plus the, the minister, the, the elders of the church will handle the affairs of the church and also discipline of members. Uh, and then they will send representatives to the local presbytery, which then if, um, oversees all the churches and all the and maintaining orthodoxy and good order in all the churches in the region. And then uh, all of these presbyteries will send representatives to the National Assembly, which oversees the entire church. So it's um, much more structured and it's also got people watching you to make sure that you don't uh, get too crazy down there at the, on the local level. Um, it is uh, because it, grows up in a settled country. It's got that parish structure that virtually all churches had in Europe. Um, and didn't really feel, I don't know, you don't really feel that sense of community quite the same way that the, the Puritans in America um, did. Um, the genius of John Knox, who was the founder of Presbyterianism in Scotland, was not so much in theology, but rather in preaching. And he could preach by all accounts. The man was a very powerful preacher. Um, 
There were on a couple times after his uh, sermons, there were riots that, uh, that his sermons provoked. Um, and, and he said, you know, that he uh, was not called upon to write many books, but rather his tongue was like a trumpet. So this is, it cr kind of creates this tradition in Presbyterianism of um, really evangelism. And indeed the, the, the American evangelical movement was originally Presbyterian. Um, Billy, Billy Graham was raised Presbyterian. Um, Billy Sunday was Presbyterian. Uh, Charles Grandison Finding was Presbyterian. So that going back to the second great awakening, there is this, uh, in the first um, camp meetings in 1800 and 1801 were organized by Presbyterians. So um, preaching and getting you right with God is, um, is part of that, part of what Presbyterianism is all about is the, the emphasis on preaching, on the word. Um, also having a national structure as it does, rather than being so locally focused as the Congregationalists uh, were, they feel they have much more of a responsibility for the nation. And so there's a sense of righteousness, which must be preached to the entire nation. And so um, John Knox did not have any qualms about preaching to the court or preaching to the queen, queen Mary, queen of Scots, famously reduced her to tears on one occasion. Um, and there is this sort of preaching to the nation that you see in the Presbyterians. So when the Presbyterians come to America, they have a rather different way of thinking about things. The Congregationalists seem to be so much more focused on what's happening locally uh, with um, uh, George Perkins Marsh. Uh, his vision seems to be the farmer taking care of his woodlot. And that's the sort of forestry he's thinking. Um, the farmer taking care of his land. Uh, it's a responsibility of the farmer, of the farmers in, in community to take care of the land. Uh, Presbyterians are more like the nation needs to get in on this. And so we see a shift um, as Congregationalists kind of fade out of this early conservation in the 19th century, everybody's Congregationalist, but after the late 19th century, they begin to disappear, which is what I thought was really interesting. Uh, my explanation for that seems is that it seems to have to do with the decline of the Puritan village of the New England village and the New England town that um, economic changes and farming changes uh, cause the erosion of these small towns and they began to decline very much like small towns in America declining today. The little towns that used to be thriving even when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, uh, all these little towns were thriving, plenty of young people and kids and um, busy stores and uh, movie theaters and everything else you, you would need. And now you drive through a lot of these small towns and they're all kind of depressing and half abandoned and boarded up and poverty stricken. Uh, this was happening to the New England town in the late 19th century for very similar reasons that the, the farming communities that had supported them no longer were economically viable.
uh, and that young people were leaving them because there were no opportunities there. And they were boring to live in compared to living in Boston or New Haven or um, Hartford or New York or wherever. Opportunities were elsewhere. And um, so you have a kind of a rear guard action by Marsh and other people like, let's preserve the New England town, but it really was not possible to do that. So the, as the New England town declined, it produced fewer and fewer people who wanted to, to preserve it uh, out of nostalgia or experience or, or whatever. Uh, at the same time, you begin to have the, um, the Presbyterians producing these former Presbyterians, people raised in this tradition yet had become to a degree secularized. Um, John Muir is a good example. Uh, Gifford Pinchot was, um, even though he has this New England background on his mother's side and a Huguenot background on his father, uh, was raised in New York City, uh, going to the same Presbyterian church that um, Theodore Roosevelt had gone to just um, a few, I don't know, 10 years before. Uh, and these churches are continuing to preach a kind of righteousness, but they're thinking in terms of national righteousness. And so uh, they begin to think these are the people that put the, the parks that were created by people from the Congregationalist tradition. You know, think they're thinking in terms of, um, of, of city parks for the people uh, and uh, are involved in the first national parks, but the National Park system comes out of the Presbyterian tradition, a system for the whole nation. So they begin to, they're thinking more nationally, more like Theodore Roosevelt. We must have this national righteousness. We must make these things available for everybody across the nation, not just the people in, uh, in, in certain cities and certain regions and leave it up to the city to, to handle this. So it, um, what we think of as kind of the modern conservation movement, modern environmental movement. Environmental movement comes out of, uh, is really shaped by these, these voices. And later on you get uh, Rachel Carson, whose uncle and uh, grandfather were both Presbyterian ministers. And um, uh, oh, uh, a variety of other voices in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and, and then we begin to see the Presbyterian church, Presbyterians, people raised Presbyterian begin to disappear from the leadership of the environmental movement, which has its own implications that I explore in the last part of the book. Right. And we, we will, we will uh, get to that, definitely. Uh, in your chapter called Nature and New England Outsiders, you begin by comparing and contrasting congregational vision the Congregational Vision for the Nation, and the Baptist Vision for the Nation, which I found super fascinating, using the two songs, America the Beautiful and My Country, Tis of Thee. Uh, what do we learn and what is its significance in that analysis? Can you share that with us? Yeah. Um, the Baptist movement, the Baptist church in America is primor primarily... Uh, inspired by New Englanders. There were Baptist churches scattered throughout the colonies that had been you know, come from the Baptist movement in England 
but uh, New England gave, and they were small and, and pretty marginal throughout the, the colonies. Uh, in the first Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s, there was a uh, this, this huge wave of revivalism uh, that focused much more on heart religion. Are you saved? Uh, have you had this experience of grace? And the uh, this caused a crisis in the Congregational Church of New England uh, because uh, just because you were not a really powerful preacher didn't mean that you were a bad minister or a bad pastor. Um, you know, you were trained at Yale, you're trained at Harvard, you knew your theology, perhaps you hadn't had that experience of grace yet, but um, one assumed that you would at some point. And along come these people that says, well, you can't lead other people to grace, you can't lead them to salvation if you yourself have not experienced it. Um, and so you get a faction in each town that wants livelier preaching, more preaching to the heart rather than preaching intellectual doctrines to the head. Um, and um, the problem was this is still in colonial times and the system of toleration that we had at the time would require you to pay for another denomination, pay that because they're all supported by taxes. And so if you have two denominations in town, then your taxes should support both churches. But it would not force you to pay for two churches in the same denomination. So you couldn't have two congregational churches in town unless you know the population had grown so much that you just couldn't fit them all into one church anymore because that would cause you to double your taxes to support two ministers and so on. And so it gave the people who were dissatisfied with their old ministers a problem. And so they solved the problem by going to this other, found this other church, these Baptists um, who were legally another, another congregation, uh, another denomination. And uh, so they began to pour into that, bringing with them this kind of revival religion and transform the Baptists of New England. Uh, and about a generation later in the 1750s, 1760s, they began to move down into the South which they found to be this great godless frontier uh, down there um, served by the Church of England, which they thought of as hardly any church at all, and uh, began to preach on street corners. And, uh, but, but anyway, they are, so the point is that they are a, um, they're coming out of New England and they are the dissenters of New England, and they do not see the church as part of a community because the church is actually a collection of the saved. The church is um, not everybody in town, but rather only those who've had the experience of grace. So, uh, and then would have go through adult baptism. So it's a different idea about what a church is and uh, of course, this is the reason why the Puritans were so, or the Congregationalists were so upset with it, is because you're dividing the community, and um, so they resisted it as much as they could, um, as much as the colonial authorities would let them. But you then have this very individualistic ethic. Then, as they move into the South, 
the focus is not on setting up parishes so much, you know, where everybody will go to this church, but rather having these revival meetings. We're having, you know, hundreds of people coming and hearing the preachers um, preach and having that experience of grace. And uh, this goal then is to get, if we can reach every single person, if we can get every single person to have this experience of grace, then we have created the godly society. There's a very different way of going about it. Um, Puritans are being Calvinists because Calvinism, we're all fallen. We will never have the perfect society. And so therefore we need certain rules and regulations from to be imposed by the town democratically or by the, the community, by the, the state to control sin for the benefit of everybody, uh, everybody else. Uh, the Baptist uh, view is not so much focused on the state. It is much more focused on the individual. If we can get the individual to behave in a godly way, if everybody behaves like Jesus, the world would be wonderful. So it's uh, a different way of thinking about environmentalism. And so I, I contrast it with the Puritan tradition in that when you get Baptist environmentalists, which we do have a surprising number, that they focus much more on how the individual is supposed to behave. And you very rarely see any sort of communal solutions um, or political solutions even. Is that? Yeah, that's a great, that, that's exactly what I wanted to get at. And I think it's a great insight, very helpful insight. Um, we're going to move way up all of a sudden. Uh, you mentioned this in your book. In 2006, the Southern Baptist Convention issued a resolution on environmentalism and evangelicals. Can you tell us briefly what this is and what it represented? It touches on, of course, what you just described, but fast forward to 2006. This perspective, which is very common amongst um, conservative evangelicals, Protestant evangelicals today, really kind of has its origins in the 1960s and 1970s, when we have that Lynn White article that actually was read by a lot of secular people and or not church going people and say, ah, oh, Christianity is the problem. Well, uh, that might make you want to say, okay, well, let's have a totally secular solution. But at the same time, you get a lot of people who want a more spiritual solution. And so they go running around the world looking for groups, religious groups that have a supposedly environmental friendly ethic, um, primarily indigenous religions, um, Buddhism, Hinduism, Eastern religions become very popular. Um, and uh, kind of a rejection of Christianity and, uh, those evangelicals in the 70s who were sympathetic with environmentalism because there was obvious problems with pollution and all these other problems that many conservatives had been on, on board with. And then they became alienated by this constant criticism of Christianity uh, and began to regard uh, environmentalism as a false religion and worshiping the earth 
And there were elements in the environmental movement that were actually openly doing that, you know, that looking for uh, the Earth Mother. This is the same era that we have a revivalism of the neo-pagan movement, um, the Wiccan movement, uh, which is looking for the Earth Goddess, the Mother Goddess, um, and worshiping that. And um, so if you were evangelical, you certainly could draw a line between the two and say, ah, Right, it's, it's paganism. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now, Mark, you finish out the book uh, by surveying basically American religions, and by that I mean religions in America and their influence on and connection to the environmental environmental movement. So, besides Calvinist Calvinism, Puritanism, Presbyterianism, and, and the Baptists, which you all have, which were all mentioned before. Uh, and this list includes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Black Church, Catholics, Episcopalians, Jews, Lutherans, and Methodists. We don't have enough time for you to mention each, but can you give us the highlights of the environmental work of, let's say, two or three of those religions that haven't played the large role that the others have? I would say that the three most important would be uh, African-American, especially Black Baptist Church, um, then which is, I guess I should have said, is kind of an exception to the other Baptists, um, and then I'll get back to them. Then uh, Catholics and Jews, um, all of whom seem to be most prominent in environmental thinking today. The um, African American perspective is different from the white Baptist, uh, the, it has a different history. It became, it grew out of the, um, the slave quarters, which is where the first Baptist churches were located in the slave quarters of the plantations in the antebellum South. And it became a kind of a place to express the community um, of the slaves or the African-American community. And it remained that after uh, emancipation. And uh, was kind of, the church would be a kind of a community center. And uh, also the, the Baptist minister would be the go-between between the black community and the white community in the South, um, ease any sort of problems between the two. Uh, it's, it's no accident that the civil rights movement, 1950s, 1960s, is led by almost exclusively by black Baptist ministers like Martin Luther King. Uh, so, and so that's an interesting mix uh, here of this individualistic Baptist ethic with a certain sense of community responsibility. And so these churches become in the 80s, especially the center for a lot of environmental justice movements uh, because they see with after, especially after the development of the idea of environmental racism, that the church then can be the defender of the black community in the South and defend it against people trying to locate PCB dumps in their community or, or other, which, you know, and other dumps that um, black communities in the cities in the South 
over and over again find themselves uh, the place where society brings its wastes and dumps it. And so uh, the church then became kind of a center of this, not in, in so much of an overt way that it was in the civil rights movement, but it, it's really interesting how often you look into how these movements, these local movements are being organized and find that there's a, uh, a Baptist church in there almost always or, or very frequently. So, um, so the, here we, out of the black church, we begin to see the movement for environmental justice, which of course has become a really important thing now in the environmental movement. Um, the uh, Catholics and the uh, Catholics too have a sense of justice, of social justice, that is generally the environmental ideas are integrated into that. So it comes kind of first uh, after Vatican II when social justice becomes sort of the, the purpose, the main, or one of the, uh, what is the, the purpose? Not, purpose is not quite the right word, but of the Catholic church, of Catholics in this world is to bring uh, social justice. And the church is supposed to push for that. So, um, the Catholic Church and Pope, successive popes have then uh, continued to push that. And you see a lot of uh, Catholics uh, at the local level involved in these movements as well. And when the popes begin to address environmental movements, which they do really about 20 years after the Protestant churches began to talk about them, it's almost always within a social justice framework. So, uh, so it's, it's a different way of thinking about the, uh, the environment. And again, it is not too, so focused on government action. Uh, it's kind of implicit, but I was struck by Laudato Si, uh, Pope Francis's uh, encyclical, the first environmental encyclical that it focused so much on teaching children or you know, working through education, working through the local churches through, to, to create a kind of an environmental ethic, which is a very different, I don't know. Um, the problem I have with that is that's not enough. You really, they, there is no policy implications of Laudato Si. It's, he kind of leaves it open, you know, we'll, we'll promote this ethic and then you work it out at your local level or local in your, your, you know, your national church or whatever. Uh, but I'll leave it to you to work it out. So that this is maybe leaves it a little too open-ended to really result in decisive action. Um, the last group that I mentioned was uh, Jewish environmentals, environmentalists. Um, who have become most prominent in the movement for, in, for um, uh, organic foods and, and better food. Michael Pollan is a really good example of that. But uh, if, you, if you go down the list of people who can, you know, are important and best known in, this, uh, in that, um, 
Marion Nestle and uh, even uh, what's her name? Katz. I forgot her first name. Who is the the author of the Moosewood cookbooks? Um, what's her name? Uh, but anyway, uh, over and over again, you, you find uh, Jewish authors. So it's uh, something that seems pretty clearly out of Jewish culture and uh, the focus on feud purity. Um, uh, you know, it, focus on, there is, a, this is, you know, food is really important in the Jewish tradition, um, especially kosher versus non-kosher, which creates this sort of constant consciousness about the food that you're eating. And uh, in a secular context, um, this, this translates pretty easily into uh, kosher, non-kosher, um, organic, non-organic, and even in uh, some uh, natural food stores, you will find that they have separate um, scoops and everything for the for the organic and the non-organic. So, so you know, you're not in kosher. You're not even supposed to use the same utensils for the the milk and the the meat products. So it's uh, I'm not the one who noticed that, but it's. Uh, I thought, well, that's really good example of this sort of right. kosher mentality uh, applied to to that. Okay. Uh, but what's really interesting to me too is to look at the progressive movement today. If you look at the progressive movement a hundred years ago, it was so liberal Protestant, and today it uh, almost everybody seems to be Catholic or Jewish or black, and so the same forces that are animating the environmental movement today uh, seem to be moving, animating the progressive movement in general. Wow. Uh, and, I, and I really think that if you were, were to apply my analysis uh, that, I've, um, that I've done to the environmental movement uh, in my book, if you applied it to politics, you would find a lot of the same things going on. Right. Well, that's a fascinating uh, piece of analysis there. Uh, Mark, because of time, we need to conclude, and I want to um, ask you a question based on the last sentence of your book. Um, you write about the environmental movement, quote, if it is not dead yet, environmentalism is certainly weak, divided, and wandering in the wilderness, close quote. Uh, as we conclude, Mark, why don't you just give us a statement uh, as to why you, you wrote this and then share anything else you'd like to with us to help us better understand our present moment in the American narrative regarding environmentalism. Yes. Uh, of course, I wrote that would be 2014 now. Um, so it's, and things have changed a bit. Uh, I've sometimes thought that maybe I should write some sort of new afterward, but um, the idea was that this, these Presbyterians who had put, I mean, if the, what we think of as the classic environmental, environmental movement of the environmental movement of the 1960s and so on was heavily shaped by Presbyterian leaders, um, authors, and it, shared its goals, had that shape 
after the sevens, these, the Presbyterians began to disappear from the leadership of the environmental movement. Um, there's a, a few that hang on for a while, but I think they're really all dead now. And there is no major environmental figure today, none who was born after 1945, which uh, I trace to a change in the church itself, um, moving in a different direction, evolving and drifting away from uh, the kind of church it used to be in the early 20th century even. Uh, it's not that environment that Presbyterians do not by a large proportion become really interested in the environment and environmental protection, they still are. Uh, and there's a lively um, earth congregation movement in the, the uh, in the Presbyterian church, both in Scotland and in the United States, that uh, is good evidence of that. But um, that has allowed kind of these other groups that had been in the background to emerge with a greater leadership role. Um, just as conservation gave way to environmentalism, uh, it seemed to me that what we think of as environmentalism was fading away. And probably something else is now, uh, that hasn't really acquired a new name, is now you know, emerging under its banner. And uh, these other groups, as I mentioned, uh, the Jews and Catholics and Blacks primarily, um, African-Americans, seem to be the ones shaping the direction that's going. Uh, back in uh, 2014, things looked to me pretty grim. We had not passed any major national environmental legislation since 1991. Uh, and so it seemed as a national movement, the environmentalism was kind of a spent force. It was still around. Uh, Sierra Club had more members than ever, far greater than it was in, its, in, in the 1960s when it actually had a lot of political power. So it, 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 um, I was not very optimistic about its future. And I didn't know where it was going. It is clear that it is moving in a new direction, particularly we, we may be starting to get some real national uh, movement on global warming finally. And uh, as we begin to, maybe we are now entering a kind of a new era and under Catholic president, which is, you know, kind of emphasize the point there uh, and also Catholic um, head of the, the uh, uh, Speaker of the House and, uh, and the, uh, the, the liberal justices on the Supreme Court are Catholic and Jewish and so on. So we are moving in this progressive direction with this new kind of uh, ethos, this new kind of ethic. And uh, it'll be interesting to see where we go, uh, there's, it's beginning to acquire quite a bit of momentum and um, it is a, not the same environmental movement that we had with um, uh, you know, in the 60s. But that doesn't mean that it's, you know, once we, that it's ineffective, you know, it's, it's, create, it's not going to be 
attacking the old issues that of, of parks and saving wild areas and things like that that had become that had been so important to the previous generation. It's mm-hmm. going to be focusing much more on on the social angle. Uh, where that leads, we we will soon know. So uh, okay. that's where it seems. So my sort of pessimistic ending of the, of the book, I think, would be rather different if I could just sort of sit down and analyze where we are today, where we're going, and and who the leaders are. Right. Well, thank you. More optimistic than the than the book uh, concludes, and uh, your insights that it's the Catholics and the uh, Jews and and uh, Black Church as the leaders is uh, helpful to us. We have been talking with Mark Stoll, professor of history at Texas Tech University and author of Inherit the Holy Mountain, Religion and the Rise of American Environmentalism, about the relationships between religion and environmentalism. Join us in building the National Museum of American Religion in the nation's capital to open in 2026 on the 240th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's immortal words, Almighty God hath created the mind free, capturing the American essence of religious freedom uh, by donating at storyofamericanreligion.org forward slash contribute. Mark, your book was absolutely enlightening. Uh, This discussion was wonderful. Thank you for being with us, and thank you especially for doing the hard work of researching and writing such a great book that helps us all understand America better. I hope you've enjoyed your time with us as well. Thank you very much, Chris. And thank yes, I have enjoyed my uh, time with you. And thank you very much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. You're welcome. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes will be released on the first and third Mondays of each month on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.